Section 5 of Best Dog Stories. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Section 5. Ordered on by John Tainter Foot. 1. The wood fire leaped and crackled, and shot small embers out upon the bricks. The embers changed from white to red, from red to gray, from gray to sullen black. Their lives were short, one moment glowing, brilliant, dead smudges on the hearth the next. Dumbbell had noticed the embers. His chair had always stood in the bay window across the big room. That day they had moved it nearer the fire. He wondered why. They had moved the leather-covered stool, too. He blinked down at it. The leather-covered stool had stood, for the past six months, just in front of his chair. He had disliked it at first because it was strange. He disliked strange things that interfered with his habits. It had been his habit until the last year to get into his chair by a single easy bound. Then he had found it better to put his forepaws in the chair seat, pull one hind leg up, and then the other. One day he had hunted quail from a pink dawn to a red eve. They had taken out young Susan Whitstone as his bracemate, who was something of a flibberty gibber. The perverse creature had insisted on flying to far, dim thickets in her searchings, leaving nearer cover unexplored. It was that way with the young. Dumbbell had humored the silly thing, had even been caught up by her infectious, sweeping flights. He had run without restraint, without dignity, without abandon. Not as he had run in those all-conquering days, and his sobriquet was the white ghost. But he had held the flitting Suzanne even, for a time, and there was this difference between them. Now and then she would flash blithely past a bit of cover, without a thought, without a sign, and then he would come plunging by, wary in heels and heart, but with a champion's nose. One instant he was in his stride, the next moveless, high-headed, tense. Within the thicket, perhaps a hundred feet away, was a breathless huddle of brown feathers and close-held wings. And then the airy Suzanne would come creeping back, awed by the splendor of his pose, vaguely troubled by the thought that, let as she might for all her days, such miracles were not for her. That night when Dumbbell put his forepaws in the chair, his hind legs, for some reason, refused to follow. He had tried to lift them up, his toes scratching on the slippery leather, until his mistress came and helped him into the chair. Limping in from the garden next day, Dumbbell had found the stool before his chair. He waited for someone to move it. No one did, and he decided to climb into the chair despite it. He found the stool was like a step. By using it, he could walk right into his chair. He tried it several times to make sure. It worked perfectly every time. From then on, he liked the stool. And now they had moved his chair and his stool nearer the fire. It had seemed a little chilly in the bay window the last few nights. It must be a very cold fall. It was certainly nice and warm here by the fire. And then he could watch the embers. He was alone with the fire and his thoughts. He could hear a faint murmur of voices coming from the dining room. The people were about the pleasant, glistening table. It might be well to go in there and stand by his mistress. Then, just before Griggs took her plate away, the fork would come stealing down quite quietly with something delicious on the end. He would be careful not to let his teeth click on the silver tines. Not that it made any difference who heard, but they had done it that way for years. 
it had begun when he was always hungry and inclined to beg and perhaps annoy the guests and rules had been made nowadays he was never very hungry and guests were never annoyed at anything he did they were as a matter of fact quite flattered if he noticed them at all dumbbell raised his head from his paws stirred and glanced at the door it was a long way to the dining-room and he was not in the least hungry he had left three pieces of liver untouched on his plate in the butler's pantry he was still watching the embers when the people came in from dinner his master and mistress and that old man named parmalee dumbbell gave the two thumps on the chair seat which hospitality required and mr parmalee came and scratched him back of the ears it was pleasant this scratching he closed his eyes the voices and the snapping of the fire grew fainter and fainter at last they drifted away altogether and he was in a queer thicket in which quail rose with a whirr at every step he took but gave no scent although he tried and tried to smell them why he champion brookfield dumbbell was flushing birds it was horrible he twitched and whined in his sleep while he slept the people talked jim said mr parmalee i've come here this time to tell you something i've discovered the happy hunting ground i want to take you there the master of brookfield looked at him inquiringly i not only discovered it i made it mr parmalee went on no i can't say that come to think of it the good lord did most of the work i just put on the finishing touches it's in minnesota are there quail up there asked gregory doubtfully i've understood not nothing to speak of at any rate no no said mr parmalee bob white must have his comforts his corn and his ragweed and his wheat some day perhaps he'll get there but not now the wilderness frightens him we'll hunt a braver bird king of them all ruffed grouse said the master of brookfield quickly just so said mr parmalee and then he explained he owned it seemed a big tract of timberland in northern minnesota he coughed slightly as he admitted it the things he owned embarrassed mr parmalee he had gone up there last year he wanted to see the great pines tremble sway and crash down before the deep biting axes and snoring saws of the lumberjacks he had seen this and other things in particular he had seen or rather heard the flight of innumerable ruffed grouse getting up before him in the thickets it was all but impenetrable cover much too thick for wing shooting and yet here was a country filled with the greatest of all game birds he thought about it for several days in any direction he pushed his way through second growth pine silver birch alders and a riot of bushes and vines a thrilling roar of wings was all about him one night he talked with the logging superintendent who recommended and sent for one red harry log boss extraordinary he came a big red man as thick through the chest as one of the pines he smote and stood in the doorway mr parmalee told him what he wanted could it be done sure anything can be done but it'll cost that's my part of it said mr parmalee who had taken stock of his man and was never embarrassed when it came to large affairs red harry turned and spat unhurriedly through the doorway i'll get a hundred roughnecks from brainerd you want some of the stuff left standin and brush heaps made every little bit have i got you right exactly if you thin it too much the birds will leave and they like brush heaps twenty square miles all set said red harry and slouched into the night the master and mistress of brookfield listened to further deeds of red harry and his roughnecks 
the eyes of the mistress of brookfield widened at this wholesale conversion of the wilderness into a shooting preserve and so mr parmalee wound up the happy hunting ground is ready he turned to his hostess i hope you would come too it will be a little rough but i'd love to said mrs gregory and jim will go quite mad the trouble is said gregory i haven't a dog that will do my stuff is all too fast for grouse i'll talk to peter to-morrow though and see what he's got but peter tilted his hat over one eye and scratched the back of his head when asked next morning to produce a grouse dog he let his eye rove down the line of runways and back to the master of brookfield a grouse dog must be a plodding creeping silent worker a field trial kennel was not the place to look for one old jane austen now my do said peter at last she always was sly-like and what with age and one thing and another she might stay around where you could get a look at her now and then the beau himself might do he's slowed down to nothing and he's got a grand nose but his rheumatism has been so bad here lately he can't hardly get out of his kennel the master of brookfield got out his cigarette case and seated himself on the kennel-house doorstep there followed a gloomy silence it was broken by peter at last what about him he inquired nodding toward the house with all the brains and all the nose in the world and his speed is gone from him take him with you there and if he flushes a single bird once he knows what they're like you can have my wages for a year i believe you're right said the master of brookfield it's queer i didn't think of it and yet when you consider everything he broke off overwhelmed by visions of the past in which a white speck swept distant horizons while horsemen cursed him lovingly and galloped after it's funny now ain't it said peter not in gruce with him lord save us two the pines had done it at first dumbbell had suspected the loons which laughed wildly from somewhere out on the black mystery of the lake but it wasn't the loons they at least were alive it was the pines the brooding pines and the silence always before wherever he had gone there had been noises reassuring noises early in the morning like this birds would chirp and roosters crow dogs give tongue and cattle rumble a greeting to the dawn horses might nicker and stamp sheep quaver to one another and best of all there would be human voices or a laugh or a song or a whistle and the trees where these things happened rustled comfortably and seemed to take an interest all this was very far away and dumbbell had the shivers but the pines had done it he had heard them all night when the wind blew the pines made a noise he did not like that noise the silence in which no matter how hard he listened nothing could be heard was almost better although the kitchen fire was banked and he lay on a shooting coat close to the stove he had begun to shiver as the noise went on he had hoped that when it stopped he would stop shivering but the wind had died out and the noise had stopped and still he shivered he could see the pines now through the cabin window black and still against the sky plainer every minute as the light grew so many of them there were a few pines at brookfield there had been a lot of them on one side of the course when he won the continental he had not shivered at them then he had just run with hundreds of men watching and smashed into his bevy finds and gone on while the men yelled but the pines down there were smaller and not so black and proud and he had been wild with excitement for of course he was winning he always won and he knew the men would crowd about him later and talk about him in hushed voices while he pretended not to hear what they said there had been so many people that day here there were so few his master and mistress 
of Mr. Parmalee and the cookman. That was all, and millions of pines. Dumbbell shivered and watched them through the window, his head between his paws. They called this place the happy hunting ground, but Dumbbell was not happy as he lay there, although he had hunted every day since they came. Of course, it was not in the least like quail hunting. Nothing was like that. You went as fast as you could when you hunted quail, and saw the country for miles and miles. It was glorious. But they wouldn't let him do that any more, and these new birds were interesting. You must go very quietly, and at the first faint scent, slow to a walk, and then to a creep, and then to a crawl, until something told you you could go no further. Dumbbell had flushed two grouse that first day before he had understood how they would burst out of the cover and roar off when he was fifty feet away. His master had said steady to him reproachfully, and Dumbbell had grinned in agony of remorse. After that, no more birds were flushed. He just crept about and found them in every direction, while his mistress called him silly names and even hugged him, now and then, when he came back with the dead bird unruffled in his mouth. He had disapproved of this hugging business. He was hunting, and even though he went slowly and was stiff for some reason, when night came, he was still champion Brookfield Dumbbell at his work, and not a precious lamb. This was the dawn of their last day in the happy hunting ground. Some of the things were packed already. The wagons would come tomorrow, and Dumbbell was glad. The wagons would take them for miles through the pines, but the train would come along, and after a while the pines would not stand in towering ranks on both sides of the track, and he would stop shivering. He lay and watched the pines until the cookman came and gave the stove its breakfast. Dumbbell wondered why it always ate wood instead of the good-smelling things that were put on top of it. Presently, his mistress called good morning to Mr. Parmalee and came into the kitchen, and the last day in the happy hunting ground had begun. His mistress stayed at the cabin that day to finish packing, and he and his master and Mr. Parmalee started out. As they were leaving, his mistress gave him a hug and felt him shiver and thought he was cold. But his master said, He'll warm up when he gets to moving. Won't you, old snoozer? Dumbbell grinned and galloped stiffly to a small thicket. He skirted it with care to show that he was ready. It was much better to hunt and forget the pines. He did forget them all morning long. Early in the day, his master made a wonderful double, both of them cross shots, and soon after that, Dumbbell pointed a live bird away off, with a dead bird in his mouth, and Mr. Parmalee, well, it wasn't exactly hugging, but it was near it. They ate lunch in a small clearing where the low gray sky seemed to rest on the tops of the pine trees. Dumbbell ate his two sandwiches slowly and stared at it. There was something about the sky he did not like. As he watched it, the shivers came back, and he was glad when lunch was over and he would go to work again. Late in the afternoon, although he was working as hard as he could, he began to shiver worse than ever, and suddenly he knew. It was not the pines that had made him shiver. It was something else. It was something that was coming. It would be here soon now. It had been coming all night. The pines had been telling him. Why, perhaps they were not so proud, so aloof as they had seemed. Perhaps they really cared, like the friendly trees at Brookfield. This thing that was coming was in the sky, the gray sky that was growing dark now, and the pines were beginning to talk about it again. Dumbbell stopped hunting and stared into the north. As he stared, his eyes changed, his soft, kindly setter eyes. They filled with green lights. Those from which he sprang, centuries and centuries before, had fled and died before this thing, coming out of the north. 
and the sleeping wolf within him was awake and was afraid. Getting pretty dark, isn't it? said the master of Brookfield. Let's hunt this piece out and break for camp. We're going to have a storm, I think. Dumbbell, go on, old man. At the words, Dumbbell turned. Rebellion was in his heart. He would not go on. He would put his tail between his legs and run. He would run to where the stove was that ate wood. This tall man, who said, go on, who was he? Dumbbell looked at him wildly, and their eyes met. Dumbbell grinned, whined, and started. Not for the stove and safety. He went carefully toward a distant brush heap. There might be a grouse in there, and the tall man, his man, in the old tan shooting coat which he had slept on so many times, had ordered him to find it. Yes, there was a grouse in the brush heap. Dumbbell slowed to a creep and then to a crawl, until something told him he could go no farther. Then he stopped, his eyes no longer green and shifting. They were warm, faithful, eager, the eyes of champion Brookfield Dumbbell on point. And then, with one last wailing shriek from the pines, the thing that had been coming, that had made him shiver so, was there. Dumbbell did not move. His fear, the fear of slinking ancestors, was gone. What if there was a roar that deafened him? What if it was as dark as night? What if he could scarcely breathe for the smothering ice particles that stung his muzzle and filled his eyes and his nostrils? The years had thinned his blood and stiffened his limbs, but his nose, which was his soul, they could not touch. It was the nose of a champion still, and wind and dark and snow could not prevail against it. There was a grouse in the brush heap. A blizzard was a terrible thing. The pines had moaned all night about it. It was here now, roaring and biting, all but lifting him off his feet. Still, there was a grouse in the brush heap. He couldn't change that. The wind was the worst. It was so hard to hold himself erect. But he must do that, whatever happened. He was on point, and champions pointed with a high head and a level tail. If he moved, the grouse would flush, and he never flushed birds. Why, long ago, when he was a tiny puppy, and they called him the runt, and were ashamed of him, he never flushed birds. He had pointed sparrows when they kept him alone day after day in the runway. Of course, no one knew he was pointing, and no one came to flush the sparrows. They would hop about in the runway for a long time, so long that his legs would begin to tremble and his back would ache, and someone should have come, but no one ever did. It was like that now, only worse. The wind was so cold. The winds were all much colder lately. This one seemed to cut right into his chest as he held his head high against it. His hind legs were going back on him, too. They were beginning to let him down a little. He must straighten up somehow. Why didn't they come? He was so cold, so very cold. If he could change his position, it would help his legs. They felt numb and queer. He felt queer all over. But there was a grouse in the brush heap. They would come and flush it soon, now. They had better hurry. He could not hold his head up much longer. It was not the wind. The wind was growing warmer, almost like summer, but he was sleepy. That was queer. He had never felt sleepy on point before. But then he had worked hard today, and he had not slept well last night because of the shivers. He would sleep better tonight, much better. Why, he could go to sleep this minute. The wind wouldn't hurt him. The wind was his friend. It had blown the snow all over him, and it was nice, warm snow. It packed itself under his chest. He could even rest a little weight on it and help his legs. But they were gone away, his legs, back to Brookfield, perhaps. He must go, too, back to Brookfield. It was bright and cheerful there. 
and always there were sounds that he knew nice sounds not like the pines and the loons he would come to the big gates first and then he would leave the drive and cut across the lawn toward the lights of the house shining through the trees he would scratch on the front door and someone would let him in and peter would be glad to see him and so would his chair his own chair near the fire and then but there was a grouse in the brush heap he had almost forgotten no he couldn't leave it just now he must stay a little longer alone in the dark in the nice warm snow the snow was getting higher about him all the time perhaps it would cover him up after a while he was not very big they had called him the runt long ago he had never flushed birds though even then and now although his master called him old snoozer he was champion brookfield dumbbell with his picture in the papers and there was a grouse in the brush heap a grouse in the brush three the mistress of brookfield raised her gun already tom she said the cook put his shoulder to the door and let it swing open a scant foot there was a whistling shriek the room was filled with a vortex of snow both lamps went out and the cook threw his weight against the door until the latch clicked in its socket it was done in five seconds practice had made him perfect but a tongue of flame had leaped out of the door as the twelve gauge spoke in an abrupt yelp that just managed to rise above the voice of the storm the cook lit the lamps again mrs gregory dropped the gun butt to the floor and felt the muscles of her right arm she was shooting three and a quarter drams of nitro her own little twenty gauge could not have been heard to the edge of the clearing her arm and shoulder were bruised to a throbbing ache she stood at the door listening for a time then she broke the gun and slipped a shell in the right barrel all ready tom yes ma'am this time the heavy charge made her stagger and forced an o of pain through her clenched teeth the cook reached for the gun you can't do that no more he said it'll tear the arm off of you i must she said i can't hold the door if the lamp blows over again it might explode i'll hold her or bust a lung said the cook and shoot with one hand mrs gregory drew the gun away and gave the cook a white smile you're a good man she said with a nod when this is over you must come back with us to what was that the cook listened intently he heard what he had heard for the past hour the shriek of the wind and the rattle of ice particles against the window but the mistress of brookfield was a woman and women listened with more than ears open the door she cried quick quick the cook obeyed for an instant the lamplight cut a yellow square a few yards into the blackness before the door it was filled with a myriad of particles of hissing snow these gave place to a staggering figure that carried another figure in its arms then the lamps blew out again when they were lighted a man of ice stood in the room he crackled and tinkled when he moved he had the voice of the master of brookfield glad you fired he croaked i'd been hoping you would he looked down at the quiet figure he carried come and get him tom i can't unbend my arms the mistress of brookfield did not explain that she had been firing for an hour or more she flew to the medicine case then to the kitchen then back with a steaming kettle it was not until mr parmalee stirred beneath the blankets a few moments later then opened his eyes and muttered her name that she flew to the master of brookfield and asked a question where she said is dumbbell the master of brookfield sat in an unheated room with his hands in a dishpan filled with snow his face despite him was twisted with pain 
but the pain in his eyes as she met them was not physical it was deeper and more lasting than the small agony of frozen fingers i ordered him on he said just before it hit us i looked as long as i dared and fired and whistled i thought he'd come back here oh she said with a sudden intaking of the breath she returned to the main room and picked up the twelve gauge she picked the cook up bodily with her eyes and set him at the door daring him with the same look to mention her arm and shoulder already tom she said he'll come to the gun if he hears it she fired until her blue-black arm refused to lift the twelve gauge any longer then she took a camp-stool close to the door and sat there waiting listening for a whine or a scratch that never came when a grayness appeared at the windows at last the outside world was still in a shrieking whirling frenzy but an hour later the storm swept away to the south as abruptly as it had come and a red sun was climbing a salmon sky above the snow-bowed pines beneath the pines the drifted snow was blue but in the clearings it was a dazzling shimmering pink which crept up the pines themselves changing them to lavender blooms filled with violet shadows not a breath of wind remained the pines were only painted on a painted sky the pink snow too was painted the whole wilderness had become unreal it was too scenic too theatrical to be true it might have been a setting for a drama of the gods and mrs gregory gasped as she stepped into it jim she said this isn't the world is it there were never such colors in the world before the master of brookfield squinted at the blushing snow the unbelievable sky and the still miracle of the pines with their impossible shadows why no he said at last it isn't the world it's the happy hunting ground don't you remember at this she looked at him ah little chief he said and one of his bandaged hands fumbled for one of hers and found it and so they set out with tom ahead breaking trail and mr parmalee waving feebly from the doorway they floundered on peering into thickets eyeing small mounds of snow fearfully but passing them without examination they would not admit just yet that one of those innocent mounds could have a dreadful secret now and then tom would fire into the air and they would stop and listen to the echoes of the shot crashing among the pines they called of course and the master of bookfield whistled but the clearings were filled with snow and sunlight and the thickets with snow and shadows and that was all at last they found something it was a gun standing against a tree it's mine said gregory now i know where i am he broke open the gun took out the shells and blew the snow from the barrels he slipped the shells into the breech automatically closed the gun and looked about him we were standing in the middle of that clearing he said pointing and i ordered him on he went toward the further end that's north isn't it tom and then it hit us and i never saw him after that chief you stand here to give us our bearings and we'll make a circle around you you go one way tom and i'll go the other we'll make the first circle to take in the edge of the clearing and widen for the next when we meet the mistress of brookfield stood and watched them go somehow it was a comfort to be here where the man he had been his blessed paws must have pattered by close to where she was standing she knew exactly how he looked when he went by he would be so earnest so intent he seemed to take on a remoteness when at work that shut her away almost completely from him it was almost a sacrilege to hug him when he had come in with a dead bird and he could not look at her 
but who could help it when he looked like that, so proud and important? If she had only been here yesterday, if she only had, if it were only now, this minute, that he was passing, and she could call his name and see by the flicker of his eye that he heard. She tried it. Dumbbell, she said softly. Manny, oh Manny. She could not see whether he passed or not. She could see nothing until she found a handkerchief in her sweater pocket. Then, when she could see again, her heart stopped beating, for Tom was waving to her and calling, and she ran toward him, floundering, stumbling, falling in the snow. When she had crossed the clearing and saw what Tom was looking at, she gave a cry of thankfulness and joy. There was the manny, alive. He was standing deep in the snow. He was pointing with a high head and a level tail as he always did. And then she saw a look of amazement in Tom's face. She came closer, and the light left her eyes as she sank down on a log and covered them with her hands. She did not move when the master of Bookfield came and stood beside her. Dumbbell was in a small glade, just beyond the shadow of a great black pine. He seemed to be carved in silver, for the sunlight flashed and twinkled on the sheath of ice which covered him, from the tip of his outstretched nose to the tip of his outstretched tail and if the ice had been enduring silver, the perfection, the certainty of his pose, could have served as a model for all the champions yet to come. They watched him for odd moments in a vast silence, and then the silence was broken. From a white mound at which he pointed there came a sound, a scratching flutter. The white mound, once a refuge, was now an icy prison. Its occupant was pecking and fluttering to be free. It was a grouse in the brush heap. Good God, exclaimed Gregory, and then, let him out, Tom, take the snow away. But the mistress of Brookfield put her hand on his arm. No, no, she said. No, no. He's held it for you all this dreadful night, in this horrible land where he doesn't belong. My Manny, my own little Manny. I see, said Gregory. Good girl. He waded to the white mound, kicked the snow away, and swung his foot against the pile of brush, the ice tinkling in the dead branches. The brush heap shivered. There was a drumming of wings, a shower of snow, and a big cock grouse shot for the blue above the pines. There was a staccato crash, a pungent breath of nitro powder, and still he went, like a bronze rocket, straight for that bit of sky. The master of Brookfield winked the dimness from his eyes and set his jaw. The grouse topped the pines in a flashing curve. He was gone. No, not quite. He had spread his wings for his sail over the treetops, when he crumpled suddenly in the air. The master of Brookfield broke open his smoking gun and looked at the small white statue, banked in snow. Dead bird, he said. Dead bird, old snoozer. The champion Brookfield dumbbell gave no sign that he heard. He could no longer stoop to a roughed grouse lying in the snow. His spirit was sweeping like the wind over Elysian fields and flashing into point after point on celestial quail. End of section 5